Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined by Daryl Bricker, the global CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, a best-selling author and leading thinker and commentator on politics and national affairs. I should say that I happen to think that Daryl's the country's most interesting and thoughtful analyst when it comes to understanding Canada's political and social trends. Not only does he have some useful heuristics for thinking about our politics, his extensive polling enables him to discern the big structural trends occurring within our society away from the day-to-day noise of partisan politics. I'm grateful to speak with him about some of these trends, including the growing agitation of younger Canadians and their sense of stalled progress. Daryl, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me on, Sean. I mentioned that you have some useful heuristics for thinking and talking about Canadian politics, and I wanted to start there, if that's okay. Uh, One of your heuristics is that Canadian elections are determined by whether the prevailing issues cause suburban voters to side with urban or rural ones. Do you want to elaborate on this insight and give some examples of when and how it's played out? Yeah, Sean. So typically the analysis of Canadian politics through the since Confederation has always been that there's one strategy that wins election campaigns. And that one strategy would be do as well as possible in the province of Quebec. And then whatever else that you can pick up in the province of Ontario should be enough to get you to a majority government or, you know, pretty competitive for a majority government. So uh, both the old progressive conservative party and the liberal party of Canada basically operated that strategy and took varying levels of success. Uh, the liberals through most of the 20th century really uh, made that work for them. But, you know, there's been occasions in which Brian Mulroney, for example, winning the biggest majority in Canadian history, operated exactly the same strategy. And due to population change, what's happened in Canada is that strategy is not necessarily the only strategy that works to form majority governments anymore. Uh, now, as we saw uh, back in the 2011 election, Stephen Harper and the Conservative Party figured out a way to win a national majority without winning in uh, in the province of Quebec. They only won five seats. Well, how did they do that? Well, they swept the West. They swept a large part of rural Canada with the exception of the province of Quebec. But most importantly, what they did was they generated support among the fastest growing, biggest part of the Canadian population, which is people living in the suburbs of our major cities. So what's happened over the space of the last while is this new strategy has emerged, which really uh, works probably better for the Conservative Party than it does for any other party, which is to combine the West and rural Canada with uh, the major suburbs of, of, the, of the big cities in the country. It's common for political pundits and commentators to talk about the importance of the so-called 416 and 905, which refers to the dense number of ridings in and around the city of Toronto. 
But I've heard you make the case that this isn't quite the right way to think about it anymore. The greater Toronto area as an economic, cultural and political entity has expanded. Uh, What do you mean? Well, we used to separate, for example, Southwest Ontario. Well, is Kitchener-Waterloo really that different from the suburbs of the city of Toronto? Or if you take it further east, I mean, when you get up to Pickering and you start moving towards uh, Belleville and places like that, particularly places that uh, uh, have more of a a university-type population, Maybe we should start thinking of them as being sort of in the uh, the the orbit of uh, of the four one six and nine oh five. So I remember when I first started into this, Sean, back in the eighties. I mean, you would look at a riding like Mississauga as being, you know, partially a a, a farming riding. Well, you, you wouldn't look at it that way anymore. And I think, uh, you know, we've seen over the space of the last. 30 years in particular, this rapid expansion of people living in the car commuting suburbs of the major cities. In fact, uh, over 90% of the population growth in the country has been in those places over the last 20 to 30 years. So we have a representation by population system. That means where the people are is where the power is. And what we're starting to see as we go through every census, the number of ridings in those places start to expand. And they're voting more as a block a series of blocks than they are voting as, uh, you know, uh, like I said before, I used to look at, you know, some of the outskirts of Toronto as being like rural ridings or the outskirts of Vancouver, and that's no longer the case. I recently spoke to Charlie McMillan about the large majority governments that Brian Mulroney won in the 1980s. Are those kind of wins still possible in Canada? Well, Stephen Harper pulled it off in 2011. Justin Trudeau certainly pulled it off in 2015. I mean, we're stuck in a stalemate right now in Canadian politics, which probably has more to do with the leaderships and the characteristics of the party than it has to do with, um, you know, the, the, the sorts of forces that, uh, uh, that, uh, uh, would lead to a sweep one way or the other. Yeah, Canadians are fairly locked in right now, I would say. Uh, you know, one of the observations I make for journalists when they call me up and they say, well, you know, there's been this fluctuation in, political support for the parties. And my observation is, no, it hasn't fluctuated since 2019. It's been pretty much in that very narrow band in which the Conservatives are slightly ahead or the Liberals are slightly ahead, the NDP not able to get over 20. Um, And it's been locked in that pattern since uh, just before the 2019 election and the the SNC-Lavalin scandal. Liberals haven't been able to break out and the Conservatives haven't been able to break through. And the NDP seems stuck where it is. So we're, it's, it's like the early 1960s between Diefenbaker and, and, and Pearson. It took a while, but at some point, there's a likelihood that somebody will break out. Uh, one group that would presumably be necessary for such a big win is eligible non-voters, which is a good segue into what's going on with younger Canadians. Uh, Daryl, we spent some time together last year, and you made the case then the group you thought that was the most anxious, angry, and possibly prone to political agitation was younger voters. Uh, let me ask a two-part question. First, what was your point then? And second, a year later, how do you feel? Oh, very much so. I mean, they're, they're the uh, sort of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the wild card in any election campaign. When, when you talk about turnout increasing, it's usually because younger people show up. Uh, either they're voting... Uh, typically, when you see turnout go up, it's because people are voting for change. And this is a really frustrated generation in so many different ways. Uh, but the biggest one, I think, and it, it doesn't sometimes doesn't get as much attention as I think it should get, which is this this idea that uh, you're, you're entitled to kind of a middle class life if you do everything right. And these days, what's happening is people seem to feel that they're doing everything right, particularly in that younger group of the population. 
And the aspiration uh, that they will be able to achieve what they should be entitled to is really very much in question. And where it really starts is around the question of housing, particularly in the places where Canadians want to live, which is in the major cities or outside the major cities and the major commuting areas. People don't want to be that far away. I mean, the trend towards, I mean, we, we think, you know, as a result of the pandemic that, uh, that what's happened is Canadians are moving out to rural areas. The truth is that's not what's happened. What's happened is they've moved into uh, maybe further commutable distances from major uh, major cities, but there's they're still living in a fairly narrow band close to the U.S. border. Uh, what uh, the other phenomenon that's interesting is what, what people have been losing population, not just in rural areas, but downtowns of major cities are starting to decline as well. So all of this uh, obviously underscores the importance of car commuting suburbs in the country because they're getting it not just from people moving uh, their new immigrants, uh, for example, or people going from rural smaller town places to closer to the city, but also the people in the downtown starting to scatter towards uh, the, the suburbs as well. So the power of the suburbs continues to increase. I just say in parentheses that the economist Mike Moffat has, has coined the phrase drive until you qualify to describe those, as you say, particularly young families fleeing the cities and going as far as they have to in order to get approved for a mortgage. Um, you've made the case, Daryl, that the concern amongst this younger cohort isn't merely about relative progress. They're, they're not just comparing their circumstances to others around them, but to their own expectations. What were their expectations and how are they falling short? Well, this is the most educated, most literate generation that we've had in Canadian history. And any way that you want to measure it, it's a very successful from uh, the, the perspective of, uh, of, uh, of you know, uh, qualification, uh, more uh, qualified for what the economy needs than we've, we've ever had. And unfortunately, they don't seem to be able to find those types of permanent opportunities that uh, uh, lead to that middle-class status that would allow them to even buy a house in, in the neighborhood that they grew up in. And that's an extremely uh, frustrating set of circumstances. And they're the first generation that's really confronted that since the end of the Second World War. So this is, uh, uh, it'll be interesting to see how they decide to express that politically, but there's a, there's a lot of tension in the, in the nation right now. I would describe public opinion as being very brittle, very fragile. And, you know, you were mentioning before, if there could be, uh, uh, you know, somebody uh, forming a potential breakout type of majority government. Yeah, somebody who can speak to these kinds of concerns, which, by the way, don't just extend to the younger generation. They also extend into the millennial and just some of the younger Gen X generations who are going through very similar kinds of things. If somebody can appeal to that, uh, they've got a ready audience of voters. Just on your point, Daryl, about this younger generation doing everything it was told and expecting that kind of middle-class progress. I worked on a project last year for the Cardis Institute on Canada's working class, and we defined working class by people in occupations that typically don't require post-secondary credentials. And one of the striking things we discovered in our research was more than half of Canadians working in working-class jobs actually have post-secondary qualifications. That is to say, they are overeducated for the types of, of jobs that they're currently holding, which speaks, as you say, to that sense of disappointment for those who've played by the rules and done everything that was expected of them. Let's stay on the subject of housing. There's been a lot of debate in policy circles about how to achieve greater densification, which at least in part means more high-rise condos. 
Um, but your research tells us that young people don't view high rise condos as a sign of progress. They've been socialized to view progress as a detached home with a backyard. Do you want to discuss this disconnect? Well, the disconnect is that you've got a bunch of, you know, reporters at major national newspapers who live in condos downtown, combined with a bunch of university professors who do the same thing, who basically see their life as the life that everybody should aspire to. And the answer to that question is no. Most people, particularly when they start families, do not want to live in a condo downtown. So what this is, is uh, people trying to create a supply that will hopefully at some point be in demand, but it's not what's in demand. Uh, what's in demand is people living in their own patch in a car commuting suburb. Yes, there are always going to be people who want to live downtown for that type of lifestyle, but that's not what the demography is showing about what's going on. So they go to a place like Amsterdam and they say, oh, you know, we're going to help. That, that's I was in Amsterdam last week. Um, you know, that's the way everybody in this country wants to live. And it's like, no, they don't. Actually, they really don't. You're, you're talking about a major cultural change in the way that people look at their middle class success. And having a very nice flat downtown is something that maybe somebody who doesn't have any kids might want or somebody, uh, you know, who's in a in a different type of a life situation than somebody who's a middle class person who's going to aspires to raise a family. Uh, those people are all moving out of the city, or a significant number are, and that's one of the things that Mike Moffat's research shows. Uh, when you when you get to uh, the position where you want to raise a family, you're not thinking about living in a condo. And one of the problems that we're going to have with the pandemic, of course, is that people now see another option. They see that they don't necessarily have to live downtown; that they can work a couple of days a week in the city, but they can work uh, maybe three days a week or two days a week living outside of the city, which is plugging into what Mike's talking about, which is this idea, you you know, you commute to, you can qualify, or you move out to, you can qualify, where you can now move out further. And the effect that that's going to have on downtowns in this country, very few people are talking about. There was a story in the Globe this morning, for example, about the fact that uh, the average downtown uh, office vacancy rate is about 20%, which is double what it was prior to the pandemic. And you say, how are we going to maintain the downtowns of these cities? So you got all these people walking around talking about the 15-minute city and the, you know densification and all the rest of it, and it's like Canadians are saying bye, see ya, and they're moving. And uh, you know every time you get a story about something wrong on the TTC or the uh, the, the transit system in uh, in Vancouver or the transit system in Calgary or Montreal, uh, people start seeing decaying downtowns. It's going to get even worse. So our city councils need to wake up to what it is that people are actually demanding. And, you know, maybe expand your uh, the, the voices that you listen to beyond the local, uh, you know, urban affairs faculty at a university, because quite frankly, they're not getting it, and start actually looking at what people want and how the demography and all of this breaks down, because they're telling you every day by what, what their actions are. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub, Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. If I can stay on that point, Daryl, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the possible 
political consequences of some of those post-pandemic changes that you're talking about in a world in which urban professionals are leaving Toronto and moving to, say, Coburg. What do you think the political ramifications may be? Will we see conservative ridings in and around the city of Toronto shift to the left um, as those populations bring their political preferences with them? Or will those communities effectively change the political preferences of their new inhabitants? Yeah, and that's that's the really interesting question. If you look at uh, the past as prologue, what tends to happen is that uh, uh, the the downtown sensibilities tend to find a way to move out. The, we were talking about the Mississaugas before. I mean, the Mississaugas never used to vote liberal. They now vote uh, they now vote liberal pretty overwhelmingly, or NDP, uh, where Jagmeet Singh is from. I mean, that that never was the case before. So yes, there's going to be a push out into the new, nearer suburbs in which that's the case. But then you see what also happens is when people leave downtown and they move to a place like say. Uh, further commuting, car commuting suburbs, what tends to happen is the people move there. And what we've seen is that actually the place changes them. They, they develop the same values as the people who are living around them. And this even is new Canadians who do the same kind of thing, which is what makes the 905, we'll just use Toronto as the example, so volatile. They can vote one way or the other. It's, it's, it's really in flux. Downtown is always going to be orange or red in most major cities. But uh, those commuting suburbs, they're the ones that tend to flip. And based on our conversation, are you worried at all about intergenerational conflict emerging in our politics? How do we avoid a political climate that pits millennials and Gen Zers against their parents and grandparents? Well, I think the first thing, Sean, we have to wake up to is the dramatic changes that are happening in the Canadian population that almost nobody's clocking. I mean, you read the odd story in the you know newspaper about, or maybe an academic might publish something, or there's maybe a story from another country that that uh, raises the same kind of issue in Canada. Um, but we don't really talk that much about demographic change. And the truth that's happened in, in this country over the space of the last 20 years is that our fertility rate has collapsed. We're now down to 1.4, which is basically not that far off of Japan. Our population, the median age is 41. Um, we're the entire baby boom of this country is all going to be 65 years of age or older in 2030. Who's talking about that? Because those are the demographic realities of what we're, we're dealing with here. You know, we've spent an awful lot of time talking about young people on this, uh, on this, uh, in this conversation. And well, there's a lot more old people <laughs> and most of the growth in the Canadian population, almost all of it comes from just two sources and that's new people moving to the country. We're bringing in more than 1% of our population now every year through immigration, but also people not dying as fast as they used to. We stopped pretty much having kids, but we still have a conversation in this country uh, and, and in politics, like what we're dealing with is a population that looked like, looks like 1960 instead of looking like 2030. And the 2030 public policy demands are going to be different than the ones that were uh, we experienced back in in, in, uh, in 1960, for example. And the reason is because we're going to be dealing with a lot of people who are in that period of life in which they're going to be less uh, consumers. Uh, they're going to be more people who are going to be using healthcare services, accessing pensions, and that kind of thing. A very expensive population that's not going to be consumptive or productive. And that's what we're going to really be facing. And so where the intergenerational pressure comes from, Sean, is who's going to pay for all of this? And if you look at other countries that are going through this, like Italy, Spain, Japan, 
China now, one of the lower birth rates in the world. How are they going to deal with it all? This is the biggest issue that nobody's talking about. It's going to have a profound effect on the world between today and 2050 and even after that. But in Canada, it's because we sort of gloss it over with immigration. We're not really talking about what's going on. And what we're, what's really happening is we're having a rapidly aging population uh, that's increasingly moving to the suburbs and increasingly moving west in the country. Yes, Nova Scotia picked up a little bit over the last little while. Halifax has grown quite significantly, but from a low base and from, you know, in a direction in which they were previously showing, you know, very stable and potentially shrinking populations. But what we've got to deal with is the shape of the Canadian population going forward. And we don't really see a lot of people talking about it. Uh, just a ton of insight there, Daryl. I would just say in parentheses for listeners interested in the subject of Canada's for fertility rate, we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with uh, sociologist and demographer Lyman Stone on his work discerning Canadians' desired fertility, their intentions, and their actual outcomes. And as, as Daryl says, at 1.4 children per woman, we're putting ourselves on a pretty extraordinary, almost historic fertility course. It is historic. It's never been this low. And keep in mind that that 1.4 represents women, I think, up to the age of about 45. If you look at the younger cohorts, the number's even lower. And there's this anticipation that there's all this pent-up demand for keep people to have kids. And we're going to see this kind of uh, uh, what they call population momentum type baby boom. No, it's not going to happen. You know why we know that? Because it's not happening anywhere. Um, yeah, this is a, a big issue. Um, and we're only starting to just taste the effects of it. But as we get closer to 2030, you're going to be seeing it a lot more. And what I have to remind people, Sean, all the time is we're not talking a generation. We're talking seven years. I mean, it's happening right now. Well said. If I can shift the conversation, Daryl, to politics, you know, I think I alluded earlier in the conversation that Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives seem to be performing well with younger Canadians in large part as an expression of this anxiety and frustration. Do you think that support is durable? How can the Conservatives get these younger Canadians to turn out? Well, they seem to be doing a little better, but I wouldn't say a ton better. I mean, the NDP and Liberals are still pretty popular. And if you see the Conservatives doing better against the Liberals, it's also because the NDP does well among younger people as well. So the vote splitting is is more profound. Like, for example, the NDP for older Canadians is not really a viable option. Uh, but for younger Canadians, it definitely is, particularly younger women. So I wouldn't say that it's because Pierre Polyev is doing great among younger Canadians. I would say that the vote splits are more profound. If I can follow up on that question, there is some debate, Daryl, in conservative circles about whether conservatives ought to lean in to, for lack of a better term, an anti-woke politics. Do you want to talk a bit about that? What are the upsides and what are the risks of conservatives challenging in a more full-throated way the, the rise of identity politics that we've seen in, in some parts of the, the left? Well, just just as there's a, a group of very vocal minority group in on the left side that is totally encapsulated and captured by this kind of conversation there is on the right too but they're not the, they're not the groups that are going to win elections uh, this next election is going to be won and as most of the Canadian elections are won uh, based on people feeling that they've got some confidence in the economic policies that you're going to bring to the uh, the table uh, what what you're seeing these days in terms of you know, the way Canadians are thinking about things is they um, they went through the pandemic and they became very focused on the health of their households. 
So what was going on with their own families? I know we were just talking about you and your kids and sinus infections and everything else. I've got, I'm, I'm, I'm quarantined. I'm quarantined right now for COVID. So, you know, very concerned about what's going on in their houses. Well, it's going from health to wealth um, where people are really concerned about that. And so what you've seen is a displacement of the uh, pandemic as, a, as an important issue by inflation, almost one for one. And what real people call inflation is the cost of living. That's what we're really, really focused on. Everything from interest rates to the ho- cost of housing and all the rest of it. Uh, woke politics is an interesting discussion for maybe college campus clubs, <laughs> or campus you know party clubs, and for people who are really interested in these issues. But most of the Canadian population is interested in what I just mentioned. So sure, you can talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, the woke left has gone too far for a lot of Canadians, and maybe a bit of pushback on that's okay. But if that's your campaign, uh, it's a dialogue of the deaf. If you really want to connect with Canadians, you've got to figure out a way to plug into what people in the 905 and the suburban areas, area codes around the city of Montreal, uh, in uh, in uh, you know around uh, in, in, in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, even Atlantic Canada, and particularly places like British Columbia, which, by the way, in terms of politics, looks an awful lot like Ontario. Um, but you've got to plug into what those what's important in the day to day lives of those folks, and that's what counts. One issue that comes across as a bit of a woke issue that isn't is law and order. And that's an issue that really works well for conservatives. And I would say it's a sleeper issue as we move into this next election campaign. Uh, the reason for that is the woke left always wants to talk about causes, root causes. It's you know, all, all you ever hear. And con- people who are more inclined to vote conservative or people who are more spooked by these types of issues want to talk about doing something. Doing something against root causes, that's a good debate. That's a, that's a debate that Stephen Harper won. And it's a debate that Pierre Polyev could win. So watch for that issue uh, emerging as we get uh, through this next election campaign. One final question about the conservatives, and then we'll turn to the liberals before we wrap up. Um, it's a, a common view in a lot of political commentary, Daryl, that climate change is a threshold issue. That is to say, parties have to be able to meet a kind of threshold of credibility on the environment before people will listen to the rest of their program. Two-part question. One, do you agree with that characterization? And two, what do conservatives have to do to prove to swing voters that they are credible on the environment and climate change? So Canadians are among the most concerned about climate change anywhere in the world. So uh, if you look at the the 30 countries that we survey every month on Global Advisor, which is a survey that we do um, on public policy issues around the world, you'll find that Canadians rank in the top five out of the 30 countries in terms of the level of concern. But climate change at a global level usually ranks on a list of, I think, 18 issues that we ask somewhere between eight and 10 on any, um, in any survey that we do. It's not a high priority issue. It's not one that's, that's really moved through the course of the pandemic. It's stayed pretty much as, as it is. For Canadians, uh, with the exception of the 2019 election campaign, it's kind of been there too, usually somewhere between four or five, six, seven, depending on what's going on in the news. Here's climate change. Climate change is what everybody agrees to and then where it all kind of goes into uh, a very difficult debate. So here's what everybody agrees to. Is it a problem? Yes. Is it the most urgent problem? Eh, I'm not sure. Particularly when you look at the pandemic, you look at inflation, you look at other issues that people are dealing with, cost of living. Eh, I'm not so sure. Do you think human beings cost? Yes, we do. Canadians believe that that's the case. Do you believe somebody somebody should do something about it? 
Absolutely. Somebody should do something about it. Who should do something about it? The government. Are you willing to pay more, do more, act more differently, do anything differently? No. I'm not willing to actually do anything. Uh, the, the, what we have is what they call in, uh, we're calling research the say-do gap, right? I mean, people will say things are, you know, that something should be done, but when you ask them to do something, they're not really sure. So the, the federal liberal government came up with the one thing that they could come up with, which was the carbon tax. So they made the climate change, climate change issue all about the carbon tax. Well, somebody was going to do something, but the public didn't necessarily think it was them that was going to be paying the carbon tax. This is the opportunity for the, um, uh, for the conservatives. When they raise questions about the carbon tax and how it actually works and how it affects families and how it affects the cost of living, that's uh, in this environment, unlike in 2019, in this environment, people are nervous about that kind of thing. And they really don't understand it. This idea that you're going to tax you and then I'm going to give you a check back and you know what, it just seems kind of odd. And particularly in an environment these days when the public is not feeling the government can really accomplish very much. I mean, this idea that we've been hearing a lot and people have been writing a lot about, you know, Canada's broken. Well, it's not that they think Canada's broken. Canadians don't think that. What they actually think is government is broken. Institutions are broken. And I'm not going to point out any particular government, but things that used to seem to be easy seem to be really hard. And I have to trust them to do this correctly and that I'm going to be compensated appropriately and that's not going to revenue neutral and all the rest of it. That, that require a lot of trust in government to get away with that. So I think that there's some pretty fertile ground for Pierre Polyev to say, look, I'm not going to deny that the climate's changing. I'm not going to say human beings aren't responsible for it because if he starts talking about that, bad place to be. But the way that we're dealing with this is wrong. That's a good conversation. Uh, we've talked already about the Conservatives' performance with younger voters. I want to ask about uh, the Liberals' performance with, with older voters. They've come to supplant the Conservatives as the leading party amongst Canadians aged 65 and older. What do you attribute that to? Is it increased public spending or is it a last gasp of Trudeau mania or, or something else? Things like, for example, public services like healthcare and pensions. Uh, when you ask uh, the, the public which party you think would do the better job of protecting these things, the liberals tend to do pretty well. So when you're talking about that older group, what are they concerned about? Well, their number one issue isn't climate change, it's healthcare. And their number one issue isn't even inflation, it's healthcare. So uh, I think that uh, they're feeling a little anxious and nervous about uh, the Conservative Party in particular and what it might do on, on healthcare, and they want to know that it's going to be preserved. But you could take that and extend it to other types of services like pensions, for example, and things that older Canadians rely on. The Liberals seem to be uh, more committed to that right now, and they're not really sure about the Conservatives. So uh, th this is obviously a blank for the Conservatives to fill in uh, prior to the election campaign. But if, if the Liberals uh, run an election campaign in which they're going to say something about um, the uh, Conservatives threatening the delivery of public health care or threatening pensions or making the lives of, of older Canadians harder, uh, that's pretty fertile ground for them, too. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, one of the challenges that the prime minister and his party faces, of course, is that whenever we have a subsequent election, they'll have been in power for a long time. How do they keep themselves looking fresh and future oriented after years of the kinds of nicks and cuts and bruises um, that time in office can cause? Uh, the answer to that question, Sean, is they don't. All they can do is make the uh, the other side look like a bigger risk. That's all they can do. And for, quite frankly, that's the only campaign they've run since 2019. 
And prior to 2015, it was the campaign they tried to run, uh, you know, against Stephen Harper in 2004, 2006, and 2008. Um, the 2011 was a bit of a different deal, but, uh, um, you know, th- that's the campaign that they run. The campaign that they run, very simple. You can take note, everybody listening, you can take out your notepad. This is the liberal campaign. The liberal campaign is um, demonize the conservatives to scare NDP voters. That's the campaign. And they're going to do it with a level of vigor because they need to in the next election campaign. If Justin Trudeau hangs around, um, that's an open question. But even if he doesn't hang around, they're still going to run that kind of campaign because they have to make the conservatives look scary. Because if they don't make the conservatives look scary, then that means progressives start looking at the NDP uh, as a possible option because they're not necessarily happy with the Liberal Party right now either. Uh, start looking at the NDP as a potential option. If the NDP starts moving up into the uh, the low to mid 20s, the Liberals are sunk. Final question, a bit of an oddball one. In all of your years of polling, what's one result that surprises you and may surprise our listeners? I'm surprised every time. I have to, I have to be honest with you. I, I have one of the worst gut instincts of anybody out there. But by the way, I think that's pretty uh, realistic for most people. I think you know, people like us who live in this world of ideas and, you know, we're swimming in data and uh, we're thinking about this stuff all the time, think that people think the way that we think. And the answer to that question is the average person doesn't. They're not consumed about, you know, the issues that columnists in the Globe and Mail or the National Post or the, the Sun are consumed about or people who are talking on power and politics. But, you know, that's, that's a very, very small audience. So the thing that I always have to remind myself is that, um, uh, you need to look at what real Canadians care about. And that means standing back, getting rid of your own predispositions and your own prejudices and your own, uh, uh, um, uh, your, your own way of thinking about the world and just go back to the basic principles of good social science. So I have a quote that you can't see it. It's here on my bookcase and in my office at home. And it's a, a quote from uh, uh, somebody named Thomas Huxley was actually Aldous Huxley's, I think, grandfather or father who wrote Brave New World. And it was, uh, the great tragedy of science is the killing of a beautiful hypothesis with an ugly fact. So what I'm trying to do all the time is do exactly that. Listen to all those hypotheses and then look at the data. And I'm often surprised by things that I think Canadians will think are great ideas that they don't and that don't end up being great ideas. So yes, the horse race polling is all very interesting. Everybody's interested in how all of that works. But digging into the kinds of things that we're talking about, Sean, today on on this podcast, and digging deeper into what are the forces that are driving all of these things, those are the things that are interesting. And so those are the things that I watch the most closely. Actually, the stuff that I watch a lot more these days than I used to watch is demography. So public opinion can move back and forth based on what's going on in the news. The um, uh, the uh, uh, the basic demographic facts of what's happening in a population, you know, August Comp said, you know, demography is destiny and everybody kind of poo-pooed him. The truth is he was more right than we think. And we're about to live through that. So every time I look at demographic data, that's when I tend to find the most surprises because we have all of these assumptions about how the population is structured that are absolutely not true at all. Well, I started this conversation by calling you the most interesting and thoughtful analyst on Canadian public policy, culture, politics, and so on and so forth. And uh, this conversation has only 
prove that out. Daryl Bricker, Global CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada, or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>